Well, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for coming. Uh, this is our Cato Institute's Hill Briefing entitled uh, The Jobs Act of 2012, Deregulation in the Wake of Financial Crisis. Uh, I am Peter Russo. I am the Director of Congressional Affairs at the Cato Institute, and I want to thank you all for coming today. Uh, normally, we would have the paper in your hands, but it is coming, so you can expect distribution of that shortly, probably in five or ten minutes or so. so. Uh, but at any rate, it is not a surprise, of course, that liberalizing regulatory policy doesn't come easy for Congress, um, but occasionally interesting exceptions can be found. Normally, you'd expect us to empty both barrels and apply a devastating critique to much of what gets passed in this town. But the unlikely signing of the Jobs Act in April of 2012 allowed for significant deregulation in the start of this latent recovery in which we now find ourselves. So to talk about the act and its effects and how to improve them is Thea Brooke-Knight, the Associate Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute. She is an attorney with extensive experience in securities regulation, small business capital access, and capital markets. Before joining Cato, she co-founded and served as general counsel of CrowdCheck, a company providing due diligence and disclosure services in the online investing market. Following the recent financial crisis, she served as investigative counsel for the Congressional Oversight Panel, charged with overseeing the expenditure of troubled asset relief program funds. She also spent several years with the Washington law firm where she focused on securities litigation, securities enforcement defense, and corporate investigations. She holds a JD from the University of Michigan Law School, so let's please welcome Thea Brooke-Knight. Good afternoon, thank you for coming, and uh, for some of you I know are joining us online, thank you for tuning in. Um, as uh, Peter said, we're going to give you actual copies of this. They're on their way over, hot off the presses. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about the format of this paper before I get into the details of it, because I wrote it with the idea of making it a useful tool and resource, not just uh, you know, some, a policy wonk talking about policy. There's some of that. There's plenty of that. But I also want to know that you guys, uh, as Hill staff, need something that you can access and that you can really dig into details quickly. Um, so we do have sections on each of the different titles. Um, and I think that each of these sections stands on its own. Um, it includes a description of the, that part of the act, um, my analysis of it, and policy recommendations. So if you need to know something about Title II, you can flip to that and read that part alone. Um, it also includes a, uh, a summary of recommendations at the end. And there's also an appendix in the back that has a table that provides a comparison of all the different types of offerings that are, dis that are discussed um, in the paper, because I know that some of these securities law issues can get kind of dense. Um, so well, after we've talked about that, uh, we'll get into the details of the paper. So let's just move forward to the, there we go. Um, as Peter mentioned, the Jobs Act of 2012, the, one of the reasons I wanted to look at it is that it's very interesting in that it is a deregulatory piece of legislation. Each one of its titles does something to pare back regulation, uh, looking at capital access, specifically with regard to small businesses. Um, and one of the reasons that we needed this at the time, um, we're going to get into this a little bit, is the way that small business capital access looked, in particular, right in the wake of the financial crisis. Um, so if we can look first at the, the Jobs Act and why it is interesting is with three main points. What it does, when it happened, and who did it. So what it does is it rolls back regulation. Uh, when it happened was right after a financial crisis. If you look at another piece of legislation aimed at the financial sector that was passed around the same time, Dodd-Frank, um, it's pretty much just the opposite. It's a huge 
specific piece of legislation that adds regulation. And who did it? Almost everyone. Um, if you look at what Congress looked at, looked like at the time that the Jobs Act passed, this was how the House and the Senate were divided, and this is what the votes looked like. So clearly, you had very broad bipartisan support, and our Democratic president signed it into law. So it's kind of a, you know, with the crisis, there's been a lot of uh, increased division over regulation of the financial sector. So this is an interesting piece of legislation in that it had such broad support on both sides of the aisle. Um, so before we get into the details of the JOBS Act itself, let's talk a little bit about what small business finance looked like at the time um, of the, uh, that the JOBS Act was passed. The first thing we have to look at is what small business looks like. There are a lot of definitions out there of what a small business is. I think the SBA has an entire list of different types of definitions depending upon the industry. But what's important to understand is that it is by no means a monolith. Um, I think that your Fortune 500 companies look more similar, even as they're in different industries, than you know two small businesses in similar industries because of how they're put together. So you know we have here just a few examples. We've got the law firm. We've got a startup. We have a gym. We've got a bakery. I mean the mechanic down the street, the uh, small manufacturing company with a hundred employees. These are all small businesses. They all have very different structures different life cycles and different needs. Um, the mechanic down the street whose the business has been in the, same in the same family for three generations, never going to go public, is going to have very different financial structures, very different capital needs, um, and a very different life cycle than, for example, the startup where you know, you've got three people building an app in somebody's garage and they want to take it public and be the next Facebook. Um, if they do make it to being the next Facebook, you're looking at an IPO in a public company, that is a very different world. Um, so what you need is a number of different options for companies that are sensitive to their different needs and their different structures. And when I talk about structures, one of the things I mean is um, just sort of the documentation, how people keep their, their records. Um, if you have, just again, to use the example of your uh, mechanic down the street, they have probably several decades of financial records and they can show you how that company in that particular location has fared over the course of 20 years. Um, the startup in somebody's garage doesn't have that. Um, they might not have any kind of financial statements besides somebody's personal bank account. Um, and these might be people who just have no real experience or expertise in even preparing financial statements. Um, and when you look at what kinds of financial products have been available to small businesses in the past, um, you've really seen people relying on a few limited products. So obviously the first thing is the founder of a business reaches into their own pocket and they take out their savings and use that. Maybe they use personal credit cards. Um, and charge a bunch of that, you know, maybe you've got $20,000 that they can charge um, to help get their business going. Um, the next thing is they might ask friends and family, say, you know, I'm starting this company, will you go in with me on it? Um, th this is an aside, this is something that happens all the time and it's not legal right now. Um, and we'll talk about my policy recommendations down the road. Um, but, you know, your, your friend says, hey, I want to start a restaurant, will you go in with me on this? And you 
you don't really set it up as a partnership and they say, well, why don't you give me some of it? I'll give you like 20%, like I'll give you, you give me some money, I'll give you like 20% of the business and you can take like some of the profits when they come in. What they've just done is sold you an equity stake in the company. It is a, a sale of stock um, according to the SEC and according to our uh, securities regulations, it's not legal um, under the current securities laws. This happens all the time. Um, it doesn't usually come to light because nobody really knows that this is what's going on. And it only becomes discovered if you have a company that winds up doing, you know, uh, additional raises of capital where you have lawyers digging into this and they look at it and say, oh my God, you have to unwind this position because this was not legal. Um, so you have to do rescission offers to everybody, which means that your, you know, your buddy who believed in you and gave you money right in the beginning, you're about to take off and really make a lot of money and you have to unwind that position and tell your buddy, sorry, you believed in me, but you can't actually profit from this. Um, so these are ways that people have been raising capital for small businesses. The other big way is uh, small business loans. Those have been mostly done by smaller banks, um, what we call community banks. And again, there are several definitions for what a community bank is, but typically if you think about you know, less than 10 billion in assets um, is a good benchmark to use. Um, we've seen uh, these smaller banks, though, have been declining. Even before the crisis started, um, they were sort of trending down. The crisis accelerated this. Uh, some of it is that business, some of the companies, some of the banks actually just failed in the crisis. Um, but a lot of them are also being taken over by larger banks. Um, you can see here the blue line that is going up um, is the, the largest five banks, and the green line going down is our community banks. So a lot of what's happening is there's been consolidation in the sector, especially when the increasing regulatory burden um, in this sector from Dodd-Frank and from other pieces of legislation, it just hasn't been as feasible for smaller banks to keep running. Um, and it's, they've been much more vulnerable takeover targets for the larger banks. And so what happens, we'll look here at lending um, by these banks. Again, you see a similar trend. You see the blue line going up. You see the green line going straight down. Um, what happens is that one of, when one of these bigger banks comes and takes over a, a community bank, they might leave it open as a branch, but the business model changes. If you have a community bank, you have people who start to get to know the business owners in their community. And so even if maybe you don't have a great credit score, maybe your business had a bad couple of years, that loan officer might be able to make a subjective determination based on personal knowledge based on knowledge of the community itself and of the industry and its different pressures to know that you actually still be a good credit risk and to make you that loan. Um, but when you have, for example, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase coming and taking over a bank, because they're such a large uh, institution, they have to have some way of keeping tabs on all of their uh, branches. So they're more likely to rely on things like Paydex and FICO scores. Um, so if you've had a bankruptcy in the last couple of years, you're probably not going to get a loan. Um, even if your community bank officer might know, oh, that was a specific incident and this person's still a good credit risk and a good investment, you're just not as likely to get that loan. Um, and honestly, these big banks have found that uh, small business lending is not profitable. So they haven't made a big show of shutting down these business lines, but they have still been kind of 
shuttering them because they haven't found them to be useful to them. Um, they've kept open small business lending for maybe people who already have a relationship with the bank, um, but it's been very difficult to get these big banks to do small business lending. Um, and if we look at the effects of the crisis here, of all of the banks that failed during the crisis, a full 81% of them were these smaller community banks. Um, so what we have is, as we came out of the crisis, there was this pressure on uh, small businesses. Their, the, their traditional source of capital, uh, the small business loan, was really declining anyway. Um, there was an overall credit crunch. It was just difficult for everybody of any kind to get credit. And there was one other piece that I think has not gotten as much attention as maybe it should, which is that this crisis originated in the housing sector. When you go to get a small business loan, if your company has real estate or has machinery that can be used as collateral, you can post that to secure your loan. Um, if your business is not that type, then what business owners typically wind up doing is posting their family home as collateral. Now, if your house is underwater, you have nothing to post. So you have these people who want to start businesses. It's a very American thing to say, well, look, I lost my job. I'm going to go start my own business. And we want to encourage that kind of entrepreneurship. Um, and yet there was a real dearth of capital in the markets exactly when we needed it. So with this as a background, um, I'd like to dig into the specific portions of the, um, of the Jobs Act. So if we move next to the IPO on-ramp, um, if you know anything about stock at all, you know about IPOs, you know about public offerings. Um, these are usually a very big undertaking. Um, they require a lot of money, mostly because you need to pay lawyers um, and accountants. There are a lot of disclosures that are involved with this. Um, pretty much the process of going public is taking all of your company's information and putting it out there for investors and the market to see. And you have to do it in a very specific way to make sure that it complies with all of the financial regulations and the securities laws. So then you need to hire lawyers and accountants and underwriters who take a cut um, in order to do one of these offerings. And so usually this is when you're looking at you know, tens of millions of dollars is when companies tend to look to IPOs. Um, but even this had not been doing well um, in the last several years, the IPO market. Um, you can see that peak is the uh, is this uh, dot-com bubble, not necessarily where we want to be. That didn't necessarily work out so well. Um, but there has been this trend downward. So the first, act, the first title of the Jobs Act was looking at trying to make the IPO more attractive, especially to smaller companies. Um, it actually applies to a very wide range of companies. Um, I think the cutoff is $1 billion in annual revenue, which, you know, if you have a billion in annual revenue, you're not a small business. But um, it's going to be attractive. Some of the changes were designed to be attractive to smaller companies looking at IPOs as well. Um, so some of the key features are uh, a phased-in disclosure process. So Sarbanes-Oxley um, in increased a lot of the disclosures that are necessary for uh, companies going public and their ongoing disclosures. One of the big features of the IPO on-ramp is allowing companies to do a scaled uh, disclosure process. So you can do fewer disclosures when you start. Here we have our copies of the actual paper um, have arrived. Um, and then you know, over a period of years, you start to ramp up to do the entire uh, disclosure process. That's why it's an on-ramp. Um, another feature that has become very popular is a confidentiality provision. So 
one of the parts of going public is that you're public now. Um, your company secrets, your financials, your business model are all going to be available for investors to look at, but also for your competitors. Um, and this means that going public is a big risk. There's not only the risk of, you know, are you going to actually sell out your issue, but there's also the risk of now the entire world knows how you do things um, and knows exactly the financial condition of your company um, and any of your IP that hasn't been fully patented yet. So this is something that companies uh, may feel a little bit unsure about. So you, you're going to go out, you're going to do this IPO. Um, because of the way the securities laws work, in the past, you hadn't, you'd have to do all of your filings and make all of these disclosures, make all of this information public before you know how well your IPO is going to do. And so that's a big risk. So one of the things that the IPO on-ramp does is it allows you to do, to start the process confidentially and to do a testing the waters so that you can go out and, you know, talk to some investors and see what institutional interest is in your offering before you go through the final process um, of doing your IPO. And when we look at this is the adoption of different on-ramp provisions. We unfortunately only have the first two years of data here. But you can see the middle one is the confident, people who are using the confidentiality provision. That was about 90% of companies that were eligible um, took advantage of that. Whereas, for example, one of the um, phased-in processes is being able to disclose uh, only two years of audited financials instead of three, we see much lower uptake on that. That's the one on the far right. Um, and just to point specifically at that one, the two years of audited financial statements, the IPO on-ramp um, provided some interesting data for us if you're interested in finding out what investors actually care about. So a lot of companies, even though they would be eligible to provide only two years of audited financials, actually pr were providing three years of audited financials. And the reason for that is that that's what investors wanted. And so that was the market telling the issuers what they wanted, and the issuers res were responding. There was no uh, regulation requiring that third year, and yet they were still providing it because that was what they needed to do to get investors to buy. Um, and we also saw that many of the offerings that did not provide three years of audited financials were actually underpriced. Um, so there's some great market feedback about what's actually important to investors. Um, and this is just some of the other adoption of, um, of IPO, of the IPO on-ramp provisions. This, the IPO on-ramp, um, unlike other titles of the Jobs Act, required no implementing regulation. So the minute the Jobs Act was signed into law, companies were able to do this. So we have a few years um, of data now. You can see that in the few, first few years after the, um, the on-ramp went online, we got a lot more IPOs. Um, and there is some research to suggest that uh, 22 IPOs can be attributed to the provisions in the um, IPO on-ramp. 2015 was more anemic. Uh, Q1 of 2016 doesn't look so good. So there's some questions that we'd want to look into about what it is. You know, was 2014 just a bunch of pent-up demand? Um, or was, were these changes in the IPO process actually making a big difference for people? Um, but the policy recommendations for this section, you know, what's great about this is that we had the industry and the regulators looking at parts of the regulatory framework to say, what's not working? 
what are the problems, where are the pain points, and how can we reduce those and encourage more growth? Um, so I would just like to see this extended further. We have, you know, the way we tend to do this regulation is we say, well, let's have this disclosure. Well, let's have this disclosure. Let's have this disclosure. And you have this, you know, piling up of all of these disclosures. So these, uh, the IPOs are incredibly expensive. There's a lot of data out there. And sometimes the more disclosure you do, the less meaningful disclosure you get. So a process for going through uh, the regulations we have now for public companies, pairing them back, figuring out what we don't actually need, and doing this on a, on a regular basis so that we continue this process of pruning the disclosures um, and so that they don't build up. Um, from there, let's move on to um, Title II Regulation D. Now, I'm going to apologize. We have to get into the weeds a little bit on securities laws in order to understand what's going on here. Um, but Regulation D is an incredibly important part of the regulatory framework. Um, if you're talking about securities offerings, you know we have the public offerings that we just talked about. This is the other way that companies raise money. Um, and you would actually be surprised at the diversity of uh, types of businesses that use this. So if you're talking about VC funding, you're talking about Reg D. If you're talking about a Broadway production, you're usually talking about Reg D. Um, hedge funds, Reg D. I mean, these are, this is what is the, you know, 800 pound gorilla uh, that actually raises comparable money to, you know, your public equity markets. So just to give a quick primer for how these work, this is an IPO. Um, you have the issuer, they file, uh, disclosures with the SEC that are made public. Um, the SEC makes the registration effective, and then the issuer is able to sell to the public. They're able to publicize their offering, advertise it any way they want, um, and people who buy these securities are able to freely buy and sell them in the secondary markets. Um, this is what a private placement, which is another term for, uh, you can use interchangeably with Reg D, it's not, yeah. There are private placements that are not Reg D, we're going to talk about them all as the same thing um, today. So you have the issuer who may use a broker um, and then sells to accredited and sophistic sophisticated investors. They're not freely tradable in the secondary markets. There's been limitations on, uh, uh, on publicity um, and how you can talk about those offerings. So to break this down, um, the thing about private placements is that it's been very confusing to figure out exactly what is meant by private placements. So the securities laws say that you have to do the disclosures required for a public company unless it's a uh, not a public offering. So then there's this question of what's a public offering. Um, there have been various attempts by the courts uh, since the 1930s to figure out what that means. In the 1980s, the SEC tried to, you know, kind of put this to rest once and for all, and came out with Regulation D, which has a few different rules within it, but we're going to talk about Rule 506. Um, so under Rule 506, before the Jobs Act, the way this worked was um, a company that wanted to sell securities could sell them without general solicitation, so you can't advertise it. That's been one of the hallmarks of a private placement, um, is no advertising and no listing on an exchange. Um, you could sell only to accredited investors and a few other people will say accredited investors, which means institutional investors and basically rich people. Um, people who earn over $200,000 a year and who have more than a million dollars in assets excluding their primary residence. Um, so, and part of this is that you could only sell to the people if you already kind of knew they were accredited. 
So you can't just go out on the street and say, well, how about you? Are you accredited? Well, how about you? How about you? You had to know, okay, I think that this person's probably accredited before you were able to even talk to them about your, your uh, securities. So this created sort of a, a quandary for some companies, which is, okay, look, if I have a bunch of friends who I know are all rich, I can just sell to my friends. Um, but what if I don't? How do I get access to those people? And so you've seen brokers stepping in and serving as um, an intermediary. Now, brokers, in order to make their work worthwhile, they have to take a certain cut of the, you know, a certain fee for do making these introductions and selling these securities. If you have a smaller offering, or if they're not quite, you know, the broker's not quite sure about you, it's not going to be worth it to them um, in order to serve as a broker to introduce you to their clients and to sell your securities. So this has made it somewhat difficult for smaller companies and for startups who aren't very well known to get access to these types of investors. Um, there have been a few things that have started to try to get people that kind of access. Um, you have, for example, incubators that provide not only a place for startups to kind of grow and develop, but they also provide some uh, conduits for introductions to, for example, venture capital funding. Um, there are also people who are called angels. Um, these are typically wealthy people who make it a habit of investing in these smaller companies. Um, they're often uh, fairly successful entrepreneurs themselves who want to give back, and what they do is they nurture these small companies. Um, they were able to go, some of these angels have gone online and created these angel networks online, but that's difficult because if you, you can't just create a website and post all of these different uh, offerings because that would be a general solicitation, which you couldn't do. Um, so they had these different, you know, gatekeeping mechanisms where you have to attest to your income before you can even see the listings. What the Jobs Act does is it cuts through a lot of this. So for people who are familiar with Regulation D, this is revolutionary. There is no more a ban on general solicitation for all Reg D offerings. So that means that you can do a kind of Reg D offering where you can advertise any way you want. So you can advertise, you know, you can get a plane to drag a banner past a crowded beach if you want. I don't think that would be a good idea, but you could do it. Um, you can be on TV and advertise your offering. Um, it's still limited to accredited investors. Um, and there are still restrictions on resale, but there is this ability to, in some ways, you know, people have called this another form of crowdfunding because you now can go online, you can advertise your offering, and when somebody comes to you to buy it, you then have to do, go through some steps to verify that they're accredited. But in terms of reaching out to different populations, you are entirely able to do that, which is a big deal because. Um, a lot of our investment we see in early stage being clustered in these certain geographic areas. So California, obviously, we all know Silicon Valley, New York, to a certain extent Boston, Cambridge, um, have really been the epicenters of early stage investing because people tend to invest in people who are near them. Now, some people who are interested in startups will go to those areas and bring their ideas and seek funding, but there are probably a number of people who have great ideas in Nebraska who just don't live near these, uh, these funds who might be interested in investing in them. There may also be some people who qualify as accredited investors who may not be interested in the whole sort of startup world or angel investing space, but would be interested in putting $500,000, $1,000 into a company that looks interesting, especially if it's local. 
Um, and they have not necessarily had a good way of tapping into these networks. So now you can have these online platforms where uh, companies can list and people can go and browse them and you can browse the companies even if you're not yourself accredited. Um, it's just at the point that you have to invest that you have to verify that you're accredited. Um, so this is actually, it provides a lot more access for people. Um, it doesn't necessarily go all the way, the way I would like. So um, if we talk about accredited investor standard, and this is in some ways its own topic, but it, as I said, it's uh, means tested. So you have to have a certain amount of wealth, and it's a specific number. It's this you know, million dollars in assets. That's going to preference people in certain geographic locations. It's going to preference people in certain age groups. So um, you know, you might have somebody who's a 70-year-old retiree living in Manhattan is more likely to have a million dollars than a 30-year-old living in uh, West Virginia. Um, and, the, and that doesn't necessarily mean that that person is a more sophisticated investor. Um, I would like to eliminate the category of accredited investor altogether and let people invest in whatever interests them um, and that they have decided is a good use of their money. But barring that, I think we could, should broaden the current definition um, to include people who may have a lot of knowledge and a lot of sophistication but don't necessarily have the money. We have this weird situation right now where people may be investment advisors and they could advise accredited investors on what they could buy even if they themselves aren't rich enough to make those same investments. That just strikes me as weird. Um, the other example I like to use is, you know, there may be people who have very deep information or experience in a certain industry and aren't able to invest in that industry. So if we take our, uh, you know, retired Manhattanite who's maybe a physician um, who can invest and you have, say, a 30-year-old mining engineer in West Virginia, uh, the mining engineer may not be able to invest in a new mining technology even though the physician can. Now, if you look at those two and have to say who's likely to be the more sophisticated investor in this area, we're going to say the young mining engineer. Um, so I would recommend broadening these categories to make sure that people can invest in things where they actually have expertise. Um, and you know, one of the cha recent changes was that it used to be that you could include the primary residence um, in calculating whether somebody was an accredited investor, and that was changed. That seems like it's it's a bit silly because you can be a renter and have a million dollars in assets, and somebody who's equally wealthy may have used some of those assets already to you know put into their house, and that choice you know makes one an accredited investor and one not, and that seems fairly arbitrary to me. So moving on to crowdfunding. Um, this is the title that's probably gotten the most attention. Um, and this is the one, this is the only one that we're talking about that has not yet gone live. Um, this will become effective May 16th. Um, the SEC wrote the final rules in the fall and uh, May 16th is the effective date. So we don't yet know how this is going to work exactly because we haven't seen it yet. Um, but we will start to see it, it by the end of this month. Um, so you might say crowdfunding. We can, we've been able to do crowdfunding forever, right? Like we've had Kickstarter, we've had all these things. The difference is um, it, you couldn't actually sell securities through crowdfunding. So Kickstarter, you can go on there and you can give somebody 100 bucks to do pretty much anything. Um, and if you look at you know, some of the other sites like GoFundMe, um, you can get some really crazy things that people are trying to get you to fund. Um, 
but they're not a sale of securities because you're giving the person money for their venture and what they're giving you, it's a token item. So you might get preferred status on a wait list um, for a popular product. You might get a t-shirt. You might get your name and the liner notes for a CD, um, but that's all. You can't actually make money off of it. And what crowd, the crowdfunding uh, provision does is it creates an exemption in the securities laws so you can do essentially a non-public public offering. Um, so you can sell securities to the general public um, using, you know, people are going to use the internet. That's kind of the idea is that you would ha be able to do it online um, without running afoul of the securities laws. It also makes it so that the, some of these online platforms can create these platforms without being required, you know, being found to be broker dealers um, under the securities laws. Being a broker dealer requires a certain amount of registration and a, a fairly heavy regulatory burden. There's an exemption um, under the crowdfunding provision for these online platforms. Now, the idea behind it, and I have to thank um, our research assistant, Ari Blask, for the uh, hand-drawn illustrations in this section. Um, I asked him for something fairly complicated, and he stepped up and actually drew them for me. So um, the idea behind crowdfunding came actually from the startup world. There were some people in, uh, you know, out in the startup world who thought, well, this is crazy. What if somebody just wants their buddies, the example we had you know, at the beginning of this talk, to just give them some money, um, and they can invest in this small thing, and it's not a, you know, it's just a small local thing. We're not talking about an IPO, um, and they wouldn't have to jump through all of those hoops. So uh, one of the ideas was say, look, how about a local cafe wants a PA system and a stage so they can do like live music, and they want to raise some money from the people who come to their cafe? There should be some way of them doing this. Um, so the idea was supposed to be this grassroots idea, small offering, decentralized, just you know, one guy doing his little crowdfunding offering. Unfortunately, this is what we got, um, and it's getting kind of heavy for him. So the limitations, um, there are some broad limitations. One is the raise can't be more than a million dollars. There are limitations on how much people can invest. So based on how much your income or assets are, there's a limitation from $2,000 to $100,000 on how much you can invest, which is, when we look at, when we were just talking about Reg D, if you are you know, an accredited investor, you can invest all the money in Reg D. There's no limit. But if you're the same accredited investor, if you are Warren Buffett, you cannot invest more than $100,000 in a crowdfunding offering. Um, there are, you have to do certain disclosures to the SEC. You have to do ongoing disclosures. Um, the rules require you to use gap accounting for certain of these disclosures, which um, is a more nuanced, more sophisticated form of accounting than most small businesses use. Um, it's likely that most small businesses will need help from accountants, um, probably help from attorneys as well to walk through some of this. There are a few traps for the unwary. So for example, you can't advertise broadly. Um, and when you, think of a, when you think of crowdfunding, what you think of is somebody going on like Facebook and saying, hey, I just started this business, you should totally invest, go here, let's get everybody together and you know, make this happen. You cannot do that. Um, what you can do is you can go on Facebook and say, I am doing an offering, go to this website. That's all you can say. Um, and the website has to be one of these funding platforms. Um, and for that, you know, just thinking about how startups work, I know some people are going to run afoul of that. It's just guaranteed. This just is antithetical to the way startups work and to the energy that they have. 
um, and sort of the self-promotion idea behind a lot of the startup culture, um, people are going to have problems with this, which means that we're going to have lawyers getting involved with some of this. Um, and as I said, there are ongoing reporting requirements. And one of the things that the final rules did that was sort of surprising is there's this exemption. So um, if you are a non-public company, but you wind up with more than a certain number of investors of record, you are required to file as a public company and become a reporting company and do the whole thing of the IPO and being a public company and all of that. Um, so for crowdfunding, people said, well, wait a minute. We're going to wind up with more than this number of investors almost instantly. I mean, almost by default, we're going to be, we're going to pop the caps. They said, okay, we're going to give you an exemption. We're not going to count crowdfunding investors toward this number. But what wound up happening was the final rules say, okay, well, but if you screw up one of your filings, if you don't do one of your ongoing disclosures, you lose that exemption. Now, all of your crowdfunding investors count toward the cap, which means that you now, startup company that was raising you know, $500,000 through crowdfunding, are now at risk of having to either go public or uh, be found in violation of the securities laws. Uh, which is a big risk. So even if it's something that you don't intend to do, it's something that you would have to consider uh, before you do a crowdfunding offering is how do we make sure we never, never, never miss one of these filings? And I have to say, if you're looking at a company that's, say, five people, um, the CEO is responsible for all of this. We, you don't have a general counsel. You might not have any counsel anywhere, even outside counsel. You don't have a compliance person. Um, and the CEO is doing all the CEO things in addition to trying to keep an eye on all of these legal requirements. Um, so it's going to be very difficult for that person. You know, this is the kind of thing where I see people running afoul of this. I think that it's just, it's exactly the kind of situation that a, a startup that's moving very quickly, especially trying to raise money, um, is going to have problems with. So uh, my recommendations. I say all of this stuff that's happening in the dark, all of these extra legal investments that people are making in their friends' businesses, let's just bring them into the light. Let's just say that's fine. And a de minimis exemption, you can put a cap on it at 500,000 if you want. You can limit it if you want to people who are personally known to the entrepreneur. But if we're doing this anyway, um, and it's not gonna go away. Um, it's not something that people are gonna stop doing. Everybody's gonna go to their family and friends and say, hey, invest in my business. We should just make it something that when people do something like this, they're not running afoul of the law without even knowing it. Um, there's also currently a restriction on the ability of uh, investment companies to form. So it seems like a great way to diversify your risk is to invest in a fund. So you get a bunch of these investments together and you are able to invest, you know, I'm gonna give $500 to this and it's in a basket of securities investments. That's currently not permitted. Um, and I think that actually provides investor protection if you have these funds because it's, you're better able to diversify. You have a fund manager who can make that, those decisions for you. Um, and I would take that conditionality on the 12G exemption, which is the thing that would make the company have to go public. Um, I think that that's just a risk waiting to happen. So, uh, and I'm running short on time, so I want to get into Regulation A. Regulation A is an old exemption. It's from 1936. Um, it was one of the original exemptions to the requirement for a company to be public. Um, it's been called the mini IPO. because It's a way that companies can sell to the general public 
with fewer disclosures than are required for an IPO and with fewer ongoing reporting requirements. Um, it had become really unpopular. So you look, there were 56 qualified Reg A offerings in 97, only one in 2011. Meanwhile, there were more than 8,000 Regulation D offerings and even 312 public offerings for under five million. So the uh, Regulation A as it existed pre-Jobs Act, you could only use it for, ra for raising up to five million dollars. So what you see is this public offering that is supposed to be the, you know, the big heavy lift was getting more, you're seeing more people raising up to five million doing a public offering than use, using Regulation A. There's clearly something really wrong with Regulation A if people would rather use um, a public offering for that. And you can see that the, uh, these are offerings for less than five million in 2011. 96% of them were Reg D, 4% of them were public, and Regulation A didn't even register. It was that one little offering. And that one offering was for uh, a revival of Godspell. Um, that was the only one, and uh, the producer has talked publicly about what a pain in the tail this was, um, that he would never use it again. He liked the idea of it because the play is about a community of people and he wanted a community of investors, but it was so burdensome that he would not see doing it again. And as I said, most uh, Broadway shows use Regulation D. Um, so why was it so difficult? Um, we have here, this is the, the trend line. Um, one, of it, one of the problems was this $5 million cap. The other is that you do have to file uh, paperwork with the SEC. They get back, they look at it, they get back to you, ask questions, there's this back and forth. But really the problem was that you not only had to do that with the SEC, you had to do that with every single one of the state regulators where you wanted to make an offering. So in addition to the SEC at the federal level, every state has its own uh, securities board. And with Regulation A, you had to comply with regulations at the federal level and at the state level. And so it was just too much work to raise $5 million to have to talk to people in every single one of these states. So the changes in the JOBS Act were, one, it lifted the cap. So you can raise up to $50 million now under uh, Regulation A. It also created a, um, so the SEC in its final rules created one version of Regulation A where there's full federal preemption. So you do not have to do, comply with any of the state regulations. You can just go to the SEC with this. Um, and that was to lift that burden of talking to every single state regulator. This means that it's also possible to do Regulation A offerings online. Um, again, if you had to go with every state regulator, there was the risk that you would have something online. And even if you say only the residents of Oklahoma can invest, there's a question of whether it's an offering if somebody from Maryland sees it. Whereas now you have that full federal preemption for some of the Regulation A offerings. Um, there are still a fair number of disclosures required and uh, ongoing disclosures as well. Um, we've had to wait for implementing, uh, implementing uh, rules for Regulation A, so it hasn't been live for that long. We're still watching to see how this plays out. Um, but the... As I said, we have seen some... Uh, we've seen more filings than we had seen before uh, the new Regulation A, which is called Reg A+, is what people have named it. Um, but one of the problems is that what the SEC did was it actually created two versions of Regulation A. So there's one that's a smaller raise where you don't have federal preemption, but you have fewer ongoing reporting requirements. And another one, you have full federal preemption, but you have more uh, reporting requirements. 
I think we're going to see almost everybody doing the one where you have to do the ongoing reporting requirements, but you don't have to comply with state level uh, rules. I would recommend that we just ex expand federal preemption to the whole thing. Um, we'll have a nice little experiment here where we look at what happens when you have some Regulation A offerings that have full federal preemption. Um, my prediction is that we see that that's actually the better way to go. We should extend that to all of them. Um, this is a very technical point, but there's some question about secondary sale of Securities A, off, uh, Regulation A offerings. Those should be fully tradable in the secondary markets, but there's some question about broker-dealer liability, um, you know, whether they have certain state-level uh, obligations. I would make it clear that they are also exempt so that, you know, companies, uh, investors can freely trade these securities, which makes them more valuable at the initial offering. Um, and I would say, you know, the disclosure regime at tier one, which are the uh, no preemption offerings, I'd say expand that to all of them. So I would say full federal preemption, lower disclosure requirements um, to make that a more attractive option. So we get to titles five and six, and I'll just go through this very quickly. What this does is it raises the cap on the number of investors of record that you have to have before you go public. Um, I would say there should be no point at which the government tells you you have to go public. This is a choice that a company makes, that it's the right decision in its life cycle, that it wants to be subject to all of these disclosures and these ongoing obligations, and this isn't something that should be required of any company. Um, so we're going to skip through that. This is a summary of my main policy recommendations that we look and make sure that we don't have mandatory disclosures that aren't really necessary. Um, that we expand the category of, of accredited investors. We create the de minimis exemption for crowdfunding so the people who are giving a few bucks to their buddy to start a restaurant aren't in trouble. Um, we allow crowdfunded funds, uh, full federal preemption for Regulation A, and no cap on the assets or shareholders for private companies. So uh, I would like to now turn this over to all of you and see if anybody has any questions about all of that.